The growth of a company is limited to growth of the founder. The road of an entrepreneur is guaranteed to be askew, and there are always big questions to overcome. How are tech founders bootstrapping their way to the top while spending money from their own pockets? How do they scale a startup that is primed for a successful exit, yet still remain profitable? These are the types of questions that this podcast will help answer, and it will shine light onto the livelihood of entrepreneurs, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the dirt in between. My name is Jim Barnish, and welcome to the dirt. Today's guest lives and breathes strategic accounting and finance. Her passion for helping innovative founders scale their finance function is unmatched in the market, at least from what I found. And I'm lucky enough to live and work in the same city as her here in Tampa. In today's conversation, we'll take a deep dive into how learning to say no, nailing your niche, and immersing yourself in a number of spiritual topics can allow you to grow yourself just as she has, her team, and her business, all the way to the Inc. 5000 list three years in a row. Founder and CEO of CFO Alliance, Brooke Evans, welcome to The Dirt. Well, I already knew this was going to be fun, but wow, that was that was fun to listen to you say. Well, it's, it's yeah. fun to be partnered with you. <laughs> so, you know, I, I obviously had on a few things there, but um, you and I have known each other for a while, helped some of the same partners and clients, but what did I miss in my intro that, that uh, that you really want listeners to know. And I think you summed up a lot in a really exquisite way. Um, but I think, you know, it sounds cliche, but it is so lonely at the top. But yet as founders, we all um, have a unique yet similar journey. Um, and so I love that you're uh, hosting this podcast to try to excavate some of that from us so we can all hear common themes and realize that we're not really alone. Um, I know founders really love to connect with one another. And so anything that I can share today that is useful for someone else in their journey, I'm super happy to do it. So let's, let's start, let's start with the basics of kind of how CFO Alliance came to be. You know, what, what's the, what's the background that led to uh, the success that now is CFO Alliance? Yeah, I wish it was some magical story, but you know, and and it's interesting too because I think being a founder, like we're all, not all, but many of us probably are type A, right? We're really driven and um, we like to to drive things forward, but yet sometimes it's in those softer moments when there are coincidences and serendipity, mm-hmm. really that it makes your life path clear. And so a little bit of that yin and yin and yang, you know, um, and so that. Both of those uh, elements were really important how CFO Alliance was born. So I had been for many, many years watching in the periphery founders start and grow businesses in Tampa. And I didn't realize like how much attention I was giving this or how much I admired these founders. But I just always thought, man, you know, it's so cool what they're doing. And I would watch and just kind of quietly admire but at the time, I was in a really traditional career path. So I was, um, I'm was i still a recovering auditor, spent many years in public accounting, too many, um, but had a great experience doing it. Um, and so 
um, eventually my intuition led me to realize like I was not built to be in public accounting. I don't have a compliant bone in my body. And so um, when I was pregnant with my second child, I just, I knew that I was about to be put on the partner track and I knew I had to leave. I could not stay and, and audit for a lifetime. And so I had never looked for a job outside of public accounting, hadn't even considered it when all the recruiters were calling. Um, but I ended up discovering this um, like inaugural finance leader position, first CFO uh, position at an entrepreneurial company and thought, you know, well, let me interview for that. So I was eight months pregnant with my second kid and uh, started that interview process, which lasted about three weeks. And I, I did get that job and I got an offer on a Friday afternoon. And the following Monday, I was trying to resign. Um, but in between my two partner meetings, I ended up going into labor. Um, so that was kind of fun. But I, I did leave public accounting and I worked for those entrepreneurs and it really just... Um, enlightened in me, you know, this love for entrepreneurs that I have. And I had read a magazine um, about a woman who had started a business like this. This is where coincidence comes in. So all these things are happening at the same time. Tony Benedetto would call them sliding door moments. Um, and so I, I read this uh, magazine article um, and a woman had started a business like this. And I thought, well, gosh, you know, if she could do that, maybe I could do that. And then working for entrepreneurs, I was, you know, inspired. And I just thought, well, gosh, you know, if there's two things that are true about me, one is I am a client service person through and through. So even though audit didn't fit for me, serving clients did, and then having this admiration for founders. So I just decided that I really wanted to come start this. And um, I thought that I had all this toolkit of accounting and finance knowledge. It would be easy to acquire clients. And that was my first uh, rude awakening on the journey of entrepreneurship. I had no idea how to sell anything. So. I mean, that's, that's, that's the dirt. So let's, let's sit on that. <laughs> right? I, you know, you, uh, you mentioned some obstacles that stood in the way when you were getting started. What any, any in particular that you think are pretty common with the founders you run into? I don't know if any of them are common or if they're unique. I mean, I was very naive about what, what it takes to sell, right. And what it takes to acquire new customers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I don't know if other founders are naive like I was, but I do think we have a tendency to um, overdo our expectations, right? And, and model out some sales predictions that maybe aren't realistic. So that's probably common. But for me, I just really had no clue what it meant to acquire customers. And it t- I started the firm with $50,000 in the bank. So I'm the, I was the primary income earner at the time. I had a two-year-old and a and like a seven month old. And I started this firm and it took me four months, no clients, completely dry, um, networking like crazy, uh, not winning deals, getting prospects, but losing them. I mean, there were definitely some tears, right? Uh, come to the close to the end of that four month period, but then landed a client and got really lucky with that, with that first win. It carried us for a while. Me. That first, me for a while. <laughs> that first win was Tribridge, right? It was not. That first one was actually Walter Walter Energy. It was a public company, so it was not founder-led, but it sure paid the bills. And um, Walter Energy, we did, we, I, so that's another thing in the early years, you know, I, I used we a lot, um, sound like a bigger firm. So <laughs> I don't yeah. know how many founders do that. But anyway, uh, yeah, Walter Energy uh, hired me and paid the bills, lots of nice projects. Over the years, they kept calling me back. Um, and so it was a nice way to have some cash flow to be able to invest in the kind of work that we wanted to be doing with the founders. Yeah, that's great. And and that was that was in what year? 2008. Oh, yeah. So that wasn't the only challenge. The, the other challenge is in obstacles in 2008. Um, we weren't in a recession yet when I started the firm. So it was like, 
That all started to happen a few months later, and Tampa didn't feel the effects of the recession until like September or October of 2008. But yeah, so here I am. I really don't know how to sell anything. I'm brand new, you know, in the market um, in Tampa. I mean, I've been in Tampa for a long time, but it's not the same, you know, working in the entrepreneurial ecosystem. So new to that, don't know how to sell anything. Recession hits. Um, so I call 2008, 9, and 10 the scrappy years. Oh, and then I was also, I realized I was a woman in a male dominated industry and I'm 32 years old. And so I thought to myself, what have I, what have I done to myself? But in that moment of realizing that I was a woman in a male dominated industry, I thought I have to make this work. It has to work for that reason. Hell yeah. So that was my motivation. Yeah. And, and we're, you know, we're kind of in, on the, on the side of recession now, right? Like there's, there's uh, a lot of, things that are common to what's going on in the macro environment right now than that were then. 100%. And there other folks are, you know, kind of going through the same, oof, what, well, that sounds a lot like me right now. Um, any, any tips for how you kind of weathered that recession and, and those obstacles that other folks can learn from? I mean, I think I, I do have a suggestion on how to weather it. It's not what I did back then. Back then, I mean, um, it was really just me and my financial needs personally weren't huge. So I just kept being really scrappy, just going after it, you know, doing whatever it would take in the moment to keep winning new business. And, you know, I'm fanatic about delivering client excellence and, um, you know, a raving fans experience, which is kind of core to how we do what we do at CFO Alliance now today. So I think just being willing to do anything. I mean, I, there were times, Jim, when I was flying on a plane to Monroe, Louisiana at account paper inventory um, for collateral audits because it paid the bills. So whatever it took to continue to be able to move forward, you know, um, that was my strategy at the time. Today, I'd say um, cash flow forecasting. So I'm fanatic about cash flow forecasting. And I've been hearing a lot of people say that all, you know, all these expert economists aren't worried about a recession, but um, the yield for the yield curve uh, was, um, inverted a couple of weeks ago. It's kind of flat right now. Anytime the yield curve is inverted, I think we ought to all be really on notice. And um, I think that we could see, like, I know there's um, productivity and jobless claims are super low and employment and hiring is still extremely hard, but I think that could all change tomorrow, like literally. And so cash flow forecasting and and making sure that you have a really good cash flow forecast, meaning like a, a a perfect structure to a 13 week cash flow forecast and then scenario planning and stress testing and being prepared uh, with cash reserves and access to cash. Um, you can't ever think about that too much in any growth economy, down economy, any economy. So make sure you got enough cash in the bank and you're, you've got the right financial help. <laughs> right. And banking partners, access to lines of credit, banking partners, access to reserves that you might not draw down today, um, but being mindful of where your working capital is going to come from if things change significantly. Well, you know, that's that's an interesting one you bring up too, because oftentimes there's a discussion that that we reach with founders around why debt can be a value add, right? <laughs> you mind just talking a little bit about that as it relates to both capital raising and just in general, you know, why founders should consider debt as an option? Yeah, because every founder has a really different mindset around debt. Mm -hmm. And I'm a really conservative person. So I get wanting to have a clean balance sheet. In fact, um, we paid off all of our existing debt last year. We had some SBA loans and things. And so we were able to pay it all down. But I just was talking to our COO about, listen, let's stress test our own business model. And let's be talking to banks right now <clears throat> about what we want to do to make sure we've got the proper amount of capital and access to it. 
<clears throat> so I like to think about um, working capital even before debt, right? So a line of credit. A lot of founders even are resistant or hesitant to have a line of credit, but a line of credit is a really valuable way to have access to cash to fund things already on your balance sheet, like growth and receivables as you're growing. So it is collateralized by um, current assets. And so no one should really be intimidated by a line of credit. I'd argue most companies should have one. And then debt is a really useful tool because you can um, not be diluted, right? So having the right debt structure, but making sure you've got a finance partner or someone that you trust helping you understand your overall balance sheet. And because there's important ratios, right? Your debt to equity ratio and looking at your fixed asset coverage charge. There's some easy ways to make sure that your ratios are in line so you're not over-borrowing and under-borrowing um, or under-borrowing and making sure that you're borrowing the amount of capital you need to either sustain a downturn or to be able to make the right investments you know, in an, in an upcycle or gosh, make the right investments in a recession. That's when really, um, you know, really successful companies make amazing investments in a downturn. Yeah. Yeah. And, and whatever your balance sheet looks like um, as you, as you think about exit strategy too, right. And, and transactions, any other, uh, any other thoughts as it relates to, you know, founders preparing to exit what that might look like in, uh, in thinking about their balance sheet a little bit differently? Well, gosh, I like, I like to always say, just be like a boy scout, right? Always be ready as if a buyer's around the corner. Mm -hmm. And my absolute favorite thing to do at the firm is when a, when one of our clients gets an unexpected um, inbound interest or unexpected letter of intent, and they're ready because they're going to get an optimal outcome. So, you know, founders that think about their business as an investment and treat it as such and make sure they have all the financial um, discipline so that when a buyer comes, they're ready. Meaning you've got clean financials, you've got financials that you can produce really quickly um, so that you could get to a buyer, you know, um, be very responsive to their request. It's all going to increase your purchase price if you're able to do that. From a balance sheet standpoint, I think about things like how a founder is structuring their personal compensation and how they're taking out distributions and whether or not they've got debt versus um, bringing in investors and what that means in terms of how they grow their overall valuation, how quickly they have to do that, how much risk they're taking on. Um, so just evaluating all those factors and um, making sure they're being wise about what they're running through the business and not running through the business on an, a P&L standpoint. I know a lot of founders think about tax and trying to maximize their tax deductions, but that's a very short-term, short-sighted strategy. I mean, you should be optimizing your deductions at the same time while optimizing value creation. Mm -hmm. And those two can coexist, but they're they're not mutually exclusive. That's a great tip. Yeah. Yeah. And um, compare that to what you're typically finding um, in, in a business that, you know, oftentimes founders are worried about opening their books up, right? You know, someone's going to steal what I've got, or I don't want to look embarrassed because this is all on me at the end of the day, right? What what tips can you give founders who might be going through that kind of psychological complex of, I can't let somebody else in my business? What advice can you give them on, um, it's okay, like, you know, we, we got you. <laughs> I guess, you know, I've, I've characteristically worked with two types of founders, those that are more controlling and command and control and those who are more empowering, right? I think we both have worked with founders that, and I'm probably a little bit of both, probably more on the controlling side, actually, so I can, I can talk about this a little bit. But um, 
founders that are empowering of their teams in general, their companies tend to grow faster because they are delegating and they're opening things, they're collaborative, they're trusting. And therefore, you can have other great leaders that help, you know, scale the company. Mm-hmm. When it's, you know, when it's command and control and, and there's concern about opening things up, then it's difficult to get the help and difficult to get traction. Um, you know, so, but to put them at ease, I don't know. I mean, how people get comfortable, you got to trust the person you do it with. So that's first and foremost, right? Having a a natural sense of trust um, and building a trusting relationship. And that's what we focus on at the firm is how do we establish trust with our clients and keep their confidence? Um, It's really important. And it takes a lot of, a lot of different skills. So making sure whoever your finance person is, whether they're internal, external, or whatever, that you've got a super high degree of trust. Yeah, and and also that you've got the um, the different elements of finance taken care of, right? Because you might have a really great bookkeeper, a really great controller, or a really great CFO, or you know someone else that you trust a lot. But um, there's different skills necessary for different types of finance functions, right? And I think that's something I see all the time is um, you know folks that um, might have a controller level person that's more of a CFO or might have a bookkeeper level person that's more of a controller that ultimately it's great to think about growing that person into the, that, that new line of duties, if you will. Right. But, but at the same time, expecting them to be a CFO when they are not trained to be a CFO um, is, is tough. So, you know, is that something that you see a lot and any tip that you might be able to give folks that are, you know, looking at their business and, and thinking about, do I have the right finance help? All the time. So I think this is what drives me every day because it's extremely rare to find that one person that is like a, we call them a full stack person, right? They can think strategically like a CFO. They still roll up their sleeves. They can do all the things. They can start a new accounting system. They can enter journal entries. They love being in the data. In fact, um, we focus a lot on innovation at the firm. And we had a session a few years ago um, where they actually taught us that we've got three sections of our brain. I can't remember the names of them, but they can't operate at the same time. Like only one center. One of them is strategic. One of them is more tactical. And I forget the third, but like you literally can't function out of each of those sections of your brain uh, concurrently. And so even to think about someone who has strategic capacities, but you need them to be tactical, they're still going to have to like shift into that other other work streams. So even if they've got the talent, but it's really hard to find that raw talent. So what we find is that. Um, Many founders try to build their accounting and finance organizations linearly, one person at a time, and it's just really hard for them. It's hard to lead them. It's hard to know how to grow them. They might have turnover. They might even have challenges with a person in the seat. So realizing that there's lots of options available to them for how they might even piecemeal a team together to get all the competencies and all the all the things they need in finance, just to open up their mindset that there's lots of ways to get that done. Yeah, and, and you... Uh... You had some of your own um, opportunities that you had to work through um, over the last few years in bringing on other talent, that other seasonal executive talent that that was the first time you kind of had to bring on, you know, folks to entrust as a true executive team, right? Um, which is always an interesting time as a founder. You know, I think you brought on a COO and a, a head of delivery or you know, chief delivery officer. Is that right? Correct. Yeah, man, it's something I wish I would have done sooner, like right, being surrounded by the right leadership team and people prodded me to do it for quite some time. 
But I just felt like, well, gosh, you know, we're not that big of a firm. How could we really need a COO and gulp? Like, can I really afford that price tag? So you think about that new fixed. I I don't know. I do because I'm a conservative finance person. I think about the new fixed cost and am I going to be able to scale, you know, and get leverage on that new fixed cost? So um, if I wouldn't have been surrounded by so many great coaches and friends and supportive people who really made me do it. Um, I don't know if I would have, and and I'm super grateful that they led me. We, you know, we're a much, much better firm, uh, much higher performing, overall scalable, all, all the things. We that that big ticket cost, right? I mean, I, this is a, it was a, an expensive cost to bring on the COO, and within three months, we were already getting leverage, and it scaled us significantly. Just leveraging my time to go grow the firm, number one, and then number two, putting in all the processes and infrastructure, and then him being a great leader. I mean, the scale is exponential. Sounds like you've got appreciation for others' gifts and scaling the team. That's great. For sure. feel feel fortunate. Was that, was that done from trial and error? Or did you hit the nail on the head the first time? Mm, I would say lots of trial and error. I think, you know, I don't have, um, my skill set is not coaching people to success, right? So when there, when there are people on a team that are naturally strong, that can run out of the gate, um, you know, they, and I was their leader, they do well. But if it's people that most humans who need coaching and development, all the things, I really lack that skill set. So without, and my CDO, <clears throat> that is her gift, is really co- coaching, nurturing, and developing people. And so that's also been really important for our scale because our team is more engaged. Our team is having longer tenure, um, and so we've always delivered great service, but to see now how engaged they are in our clients with each other is really magical. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a lot of trial and error getting there as well. And even thinking about that additional fixed cost in the business and, and having an appreciation for, because um, I'm so client centric and having an appreciation for someone being so people centric and how important both of those are to the total equation. Any any tip for, mm-hmm. for folks that are um, might be going through that same you know, do I, do I not? Man, I would say, um, think about it strategically first before just thinking about the financial investment. Mm -hmm. Think about what the returns could be. Also, you know, the, um, the support system that I had around me helped me craft a really, um, rigorous process for evaluating the talent. So having a good process and making sure you're hiring the right person will, will provide some comfort um, and, and surrounding yourself with other experts who can help you. Cause if it's only your worldview, you know um, maybe, maybe you'll miss something. I know I do. Cause I got a lot of blind spots, <clears throat> but thinking first strategically about the return you're going to get and then budgeting for it and just feeling like you can breathe, right. You can see how the budget's going to work. You can scenario plan if you don't get a, you know, if you don't get leverage right away, just feel comfortable with the financial investment, but knowing that there's going to be a strategic return. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, uh, I think you, you, you hit the nail on the head there and you also had another connecting piece that, um, that I want to hit on, which is, uh, learning to say no to things that aren't strategically in your wheelhouse or don't have some strategic value that um, is often tempting to to take on revenue projects, right? That um, will increase growth theoretically, but the outcome is oftentimes lack of focus and not, you know, really nailing your niche and niches are important. So 
you know, how, how did you, how did you start learning to say no and, and really kind of nail your niche, which has allowed you to scale? So necessity is the mother of invention, right? I mean, as, um, as a founder, I don't know if all founders feel this way, but any revenue seems like good revenue, especially in the early years, right? You talk about those scrappy years and flying on a plane to go count paper inventory. Any any revenue seems like good revenue. Yeah. But in 2019, um, you know, we tried to be a lot of things to a lot of people. We, we've served from well-funded startup to kind of 500 million private equity backed over the years. And we still do. But in 2019, we tried to scale like four different business segments. Um, and we were only a $2 million company at the time. So to think about trying to scale for business segments at 2 million, I look back at it now, I'm like, well, that was goofy. You know, it seemed, seemed like a smart idea at the time, but 2019 was just a really trying year. It was really hard. We, we didn't have focus. And so we ended up, I think we were break even that year, which was, you know, kind of painful. We had some cash flow challenges because even operating at break even, you know, you run into cash flow stuff. Mm-hmm. And so it was really, we were exhausted, right? The team was exhausted. I was exhausted at the end of 2019. And Melissa Knox on my team, who I, I owe a whole bunch to, said, listen, we've been trying to do a lot this year and we should really look at what's been working and not working. And we had two sessions. One was on who is our ideal client profile? Um, let us, let's talk about, we've been trying to do all these things, but really who is ideal. So we had like a three hour working session and we wrote down all these qualitative characteristics, quantitative characters, all the things. And when we really dial that in, there's like a set of 10 things that define who's ideal for us. And that was a game changer. Um, I was tired enough at the end of 2019. I thought this is it. Like we got to focus on this niche. It's a special niche. I know we're great at this niche. I love this niche, like innovative founder led companies who are on a growth journey. It's like, it really is why we exist. Some of the other stuff is fun, like serving big companies that are doing transformative work, also fun and actually really profitable, but we loved innovative founders. And so we just dialed it in. And in 2020, it was the first year we actually started saying no to some things. <clears throat> it's still hard for me, but we rate our opportunities now as whether they're ideal or kind of second tier or third tier. And we can either price them accordingly or find a partner who might be able to serve them or just say no if we have to DQ them. And we're, you know, almost, we're about two and a half times the size we were in 2019 as a result. Oh, oh that's, yeah, that's incredible. A lot of, lot of good knowledge there. Um, one thing I, I uh, hope you don't mind if I hit on that, that I think is really special about you. And, and I think is really special when founders realize they, they need it is the connection to number one, coaching and mentorship. And also number two, you know, uh, really getting in touch with their own spiritual self their own psychology and 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 spiritual nature of of growth personal growth if you will right um and i've been really uh you know kind of intrigued at the way that that you've that you've done some of that spiritual growth that you've gotten um really in touch with some of that and spiritual awareness if you will would you mind just sharing with the group kind of how you got there and and any tips that you have for other folks who are you know probably in need of a little bit of their own personal growth. Yeah, absolutely. I can think of a couple of inflection points. So um, for many years, even after those scrappy years, so kind of 2011 through 2015, we'd have some success, but then we'd have some down times and up and down. I felt a little up and down. And I realized, you know, I had a great coach at the time. He's like a CEO effectiveness coach and also a psychologist. And he really instilled in me, right? Like the gro- growth of a company is limited to growth of the founder, right? We set the tone and um, you learn that like any anything that's 
a failure in the firm or anything, it's it all comes back to you as a founder. Like in some way, shape, or form, it's our responsibility, right? So the only way is if every day I can look at the failures that we have and choose to work on myself first and become a better leader and and you know influence the firm that way. Um, so I spent a lot of time with that coach. I think nine years I worked with him. And uh, but what in 2017 was really the second inflection point. So 2017, we had like this um, perfect storm of three like really unfavorable circumstances. We had been growing a lot, hiring people, um, and three things all hit at once. And um, we had gone from being really profitable uh, to where in like uh, March 2017, we started a decline. And by July of 2017, we lost $100,000 that month. And we had just built this team. So I had just brought on, right? We finally had, we'd grown from eight people to 17 people. And they're incredible people, right? So we worked really hard to get these people on the team. And then I think a lot of women founders, especially, um, tend to grow a little more slowly sometimes because we we think like we're responsible for the livelihoods of these people, right? So that means a lot to us. And so it wasn't even an option for me to think about um, letting any of them go. And also we were implementing a brand new system. I forget about that. We were implementing a brand new system and spending like 50 grand on this system plus implementation. It wasn't going well. So like in July of 2017, it was the kind of month where you're waking up every night in the middle of the night, like not being able to sleep and you're sweating. Right. Um, and it was in that moment, again, I could either freak out or I had to find some way to have faith that this was all going to be okay. And that I was going to be able to retain these people. And so the only thing I knew to turn to, I'm not a real religious person. I believe in all religions. I literally love them all and can take things from any of them, Um, but I'm not like dogmatic. And so I just, I really turned to spirituality and I was listening to a lot of Deepak Chopra at the time. And I found myself going to Barnes and Noble kind of once a week and serendipitously just going to the spirituality section or the professional help section and letting a book choose me or a couple of books, choose me. And I just, for that year from middle of 2017 and middle of 2018, I just couldn't consume enough of that kind of content. And it helps so much just in terms of shifting your mindset and giving you practical tools along with faith, right? I truly believe that everything happens for a reason and there are coincidences. And so even when there are things that seem negative, it's just pausing for a moment and letting it pass and waiting to see what the thing actually is, because it's not necessarily all bad. It's just something you're supposed to experience in order to be able to get to what's next for you. So I'm a, I'm a giant proponent of, I don't know, the universe, you could call it God, um, any number of things, but yeah, that's, that's very special. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. And, you know, innovation is, is, a is in our blood. That's why we're here. Right. Um, but spirituality, I think is something that so many people <laughs> forget that personal growth is probably half of, of building a really successful business. If the founder's not growing, there's a good chance that the business isn't growing and the team isn't growing. Um, so, um, you know, on that same note of innovative founders though, you've got a really cool campaign that's kickstarting this month right? I think it's called the Innovative Founders Campaign. It is. It is. Super excited about (laughs) it. Can you share folks about that? Because I'm also super excited about that. Yeah. You know, I mean, we have amazing relationships with Innovative Founders in Tampa, and we've got some relationships outside of Florida. But in my experience, um, getting connected to founders, they don't really realize that what we do is an option for them. And many founders struggle to build their accounting and finance teams. It's kind of a painful area for, for a lot of founders. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and it's hard to have the money to invest in it and invest in it in the right way. And so that's kind of the model we built. But for us, we just want to develop relationships and build awareness in the founder community that they do have options on their journey. And so we've started to produce some some content and collateral. I'm trying to um, I'm passionate about trying to deliver value in every interaction. So trying to build trust through an online relationship to start to broaden awareness that there are solutions available to founders. So we've launched some of that content, and then we are having an event here in Tampa. Um, I'm super excited about next week. That'll be on the heels of some of that stuff that's already been published out there. So. Awesome. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm also super excited about the event and, and the campaign and wish more people were doing stuff for innovative founders. Um, and it's, a uh, it's a really fun space to be in. Um, you know, the, uh, you've, you've dropped so much knowledge in so much dirt, right? You've got to the good, the bad and the ugly about your story. <laughs> and I appreciate you for sharing. And we typically close these off, um, with, a uh, what I call the founder five, which is just a series of five rapid fire questions. All right, let's do it. All right. So number one, uh, the key metric or KPI that you're relentlessly focused on? Um, run rate revenue growth. Mm. Top tip for growth stage founders like yourself? Oh, gosh. Um, be balanced. Be balanced. Love it. Favorite like- book? Oh, go ahead. Uh, be balanced in life. Yeah. Oh yeah. Even better. Favorite book or podcast that's helped you to grow. Oh man. Uh, I would say two. So think and grow rich, uh, Mm um, by Napoleon Hill and also, um, the top seven laws for spiritual success by Deepak Chopra. Love it. Uh, what actress would play you in a movie? Oh my gosh, I have no idea. I've heard that, um, I've heard sometimes Kristen Wiig that I'm her doppelganger, so I don't know. Maybe nice. Kristen Wiig. No, she's hilarious. <laughs> uh, what is going to be the title of your autobiography? Rebel with a Cause. Oh man, yeah, nice. <laughs> so uh, <clears throat> thanks, Brooke. You, you've given so much to our audience today, and um, I always want to try to allow for a little bit of self-promotion at the end on how others might be able to help you now that you've given them so much. So how can how can they help you? How can they help CFO Alliance? I love to connect with people so and build relationships. So if there's anyone that um, anyone thinks would be a good friend of me or the firm, I'd love to know them. And I know, how, how can people get in touch with you if they do? Let's see. They can email me. It's a little long. I don't know. Maybe you can share with B Evans at CFOAllianceInc.com. Um, or they can find us on our website, CFOAllianceInc.com. And we will definitely put that in the show notes as well. So uh, thanks for sharing. This has been terrific, Brooke. And uh, you have yourself a wonderful rest of your day. Jim, thanks so much for inviting me on. You're an awesome host. This was great. Thank you. If you loved today's episode of The Dirt, Make sure you rate it on your favorite platform. And if you really liked us, go ahead and leave us an honest review. Thanks again for tuning in to The Dirt.